0: This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money.
1: Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Today, we are very pleased to welcome on Joel Friedland with Brit Properties, the founder and CEO of this firm. And we're going to be talking about something a little bit interesting today. While I do think that the topic of industrial real estate is uh, very fascinating uh, because we haven't really kind of covered that subject too much. We had one guest on uh, not too terribly long ago with uh, Sugarloaf Investing or Sugar Homes Investing. But we, uh, we, one of the things that is kind of, you know, very ingrained in the commercial real estate space, no matter what flavor you're looking at, is debt. And we're going to be kind of talking about some interesting ways of doing it, namely doing it without debt, or if we are doing it, maybe having minimal levels of it. So, Joel, maybe give us a little bit of a background about yourself, how you came to be in the position you're currently in, how BRIT Properties got its start, and we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure, sure.
0: Uh, well, Alex, I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And when I was in uh, middle school, um, my folks were uh, professional people. My dad was a psychologist and my mother uh, was a therapist. So they weren't in business. And the area that I lived in, there were a lot of people who uh, my my friends, parents, uh, mostly the dads in those years, uh, had businesses or were professionals and made a lot of money. And my folks were more helping people. Uh, rather than being interested in building a big business. And I needed money as a kid. And my parents couldn't buy some of the things I wanted to buy when I was 14 years old. So I started a lawn business on a weekend when my parents were out of town. I went door to door in my neighborhood. And I, in one weekend, I got 70 homeowners to hire me to be their landscaper. And at age 14, I couldn't even drive. So I had to hire older kids <laughs> to drive cars with trailers to pull the lawnmowers around and uh, it was a real business and I built it up even bigger than that I was a cold calling machine and I was really good with people and that that started um my career in sales when I graduated from the University of Michigan I decided immediately at age 22 to go into real estate and I cold called again that, that was my specialty I cold called a fellow named Milt Pedalski who had uh, 84 industrial buildings. He was referred to me by somebody that I knew, said, if you want to get into real estate, call Milt. So Milt invited me over that day. I went to see him. I met with Milt and his sons. He had two sons and a, a daughter in the business. It was called Podolsky and Associates. And I'm in their conference room and Milt says, kid, if I hire you, right now it's 1981. He says, if I hire you, I've got 84 buildings, 10 are vacant. Interest rates are up about 20%. Nobody's doing anything. How would you fill my buildings? And I told him the story about my landscaping business, and my cold calling. And I said, Milt, what I would do is I'd go to the industrial parks where your buildings are located, and I'd go door to door, and I would literally pull tenants out of other buildings and bring them to your buildings. And with that, he said, you are hired. <laughs> oh, so that, was, that was my first day. Uh, They were the best mentors in the world, and I went to work for mainly Steve, uh, who I'm still close with, even after 42 years and not working there anymore. And Steve was the greatest mentor on earth, taught me everything there was to know about leases and contracts and financing. And I asked them to help me uh, with my first syndication because I saw they made all their money by being syndicators in the 1960s. So in 1990, I was nine years in the business, the Podolskys put up some of the money, and I went out and raised the rest and bought my first syndicated property. It was an industrial building, 14,000 square feet, $560,000, $20,000 investments from everybody. And by the way, I had to put in 20000 because all the investors said, how much are you putting in? Something they really like to know. So from there, um, I started a business doing uh, industrial real estate brokerage and acquisitions and syndication. And since then, I've been through four downturns, and we have bought 100 industrial buildings all over the country. But lately, I've decided I want to be a laser-focused specialist, and I'm only doing B and C industrial in Chicago. And I can tell you, uh, Chicago is a great market for industrial. We've got 1.5 billion square feet, 16,000 buildings, 22,000 industrial companies. I don't need to get on an airplane to go anywhere to find other business. There's so much here. And being an expert in this market for 40 years, I think that helps my investors and it helps me to make sure that we're making smart decisions with uh, tremendous market reconnaissance. So
1: that's, Sounds that's good. Joe- so... <laughs> Yeah, one thing I'd like to have you define is that you know, most of our listener bases Pretty familiar with the different classifications of commercial real estate as it relates to and apartment buildings. Um, you know, when you're talking about B and C industrial, again, I think we said it on our pre-call. You know, beside the only thing I know about industrial is that you know making sure it's zoned industrial and that it has you know probably has three phase power. Uh, besides that, I really don't know much about you know what would make something a B versus a C versus an A. Um, you know, you, you you don't you don't look at an A industrial property and say oh it's got a swimming pool and a and a tanning salon. You know it's that's not the kind of things that you classify these properties as. So before we dig really too far into the nuts and bolts of this, let's kind of, again, give some, give some kind of glossary definition of your investment thesis being what does a B and a C industrial property even look like? And how does that compare to what like an A would be as well?
0: So A uh, industrial would be the kind of building that when you drive on the tollway or the highway in any city, really anywhere in the world you now see these huge buildings that are just, they look like they're a mile long. They're hundreds and hundreds, if not 1,000 or 1,500 feet long. On both sides, they have beautiful windows. They're very high ceilings, and it's precast uh, concrete or tilt-up concrete. And they've got a, just a line of loading docks. And these buildings are, are mostly distribution facilities, that are 36-foot clear ceiling, which is really high, high cube. And they're occupied by companies like uh, Amazon and Target for their warehouse. Any, any major company, no matter what it is, whether it's a food business or whether it's electronics or whether it's uh, car parts, everybody has to have a warehouse and they have to have a manufacturing plant. If you look around your office, you look around your home, look behind me, Everything in this office was made in an industrial building and eventually landed in a warehouse before it got to me, whether I bought it in a store or I bought it online. Everything in this, everything that's made or manufactured. So these A buildings are these very tall, new, relatively new, the last five to seven years. And they're primarily owned by pension funds because they're $50 million properties or $100 million properties because they're so big. that's A. B are smaller buildings, older buildings, lower ceilings, usually brick or some other material, not necessarily uh, the precast concrete, not as pretty, not as many loading docks. So it's, a, it's almost like a, a, a new home, like a new mansion would be A, if you compared it to single family, and B would be a used 30-year-old house that two families have lived in that somebody might buy, except it's on a scale that's 100 times larger than a single-family home. For example, we're, we're buying some property this week, and our total all-in cost is $14 million. So it's, it, you know, it's more than a house. And the property uh, is all B and C industrial in the city of Chicago right near downtown. We call that infill. So that's the other thing. A, properties are almost always on the outskirts of town where they had a farm or a big piece of land where they could build it. What we buy, the B and C, is infill, which means in a populated area, very close in suburb, very close to an airport, the main airport in town, or very close to the downtown area because there's more demand for that kind of building. So that's a B and a C, and that's the the type of property that we invest in. Very important distinction yeah, what the kind investors of investors get is really where where, the, where you're talking about the differences
1: and what kind of businesses utilize these b and c properties? Would it be something where you get into like heavy manufacturing or no, is it kind of like no, a drop ship stuff or? no never never it's,
0: it's it's light manufacturing heavy manufacturing okay. is done in places in Pennsylvania or in Gary, Indiana, these giant steel plants are along i ten Uh, Baton Rouge uh, or Lake Charles, Louisiana, those giant uh, lit up smokestack, that's not what industrial is today as an asset class. That's that's called heavy industrial and we have nothing to do with it. And none of our competitors or associates have anything to do with that kind of uh, facility. Okay. Uh, Even a car plant, even a, a Tesla plant today is very modern. It's not smokestack. It's state-of-the-art robotics. That would be considered an A. The, the new Tesla plant in Texas would be considered an A type of a of a plant. And there, and the A properties are almost always owned by institutions, pension funds, like Ohio Teachers Pension Fund, uh, employees of the state of Washington Pension Fund, and, and they're they're looking at just putting billions of dollars out, and they're willing to take what I would call a a relatively low cap rate. So those deals are throwing off, let's say, 5% today. Before the market got a little choppy and before interest rates went up, in California they were doing 3.5 caps and 4 and and 4.5 caps. Today Mm -hmm. they're up to 5 and maybe 5.5. That would be intolerable to my investors. I've I've got a syndicated group of investors. If I told them that they were getting a five and a half percent return, they would laugh and hang up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the three percent make more.
1: Yeah, the three percent rate. I mean, you're almost losing like half a point just to inflation. All said and done. Um, so what is, so, you know, again, we, I think we've narrowed the scope of, you know, what is within the bounds of the, the core focus of your investing. So what's kind of your, uh, you know, tenant avatar for these type of industrial properties then?
0: Okay. So we have, uh, 22 tenants in our current portfolio. We have a company that was on shark tank that makes protein bars. So they have 80 employees and they have all these work rooms where they they have chocolate room, and then they have a peanut room where they have to keep the allergens away from other uh, products. They have oatmeal. So they've got 80 people working in a 50,000-square-foot space, and they're baking. First, they're, they're mixing ingredients, and then they're baking, and then they're packaging protein bars. That's one. An- another example, we have a company that makes exhibits for children's museums for uh, these museums all around the world. Every every city has a children's museum. Somebody makes those cute exhibits where the kids have interactive uh, play things like either you put a ball in a tube and it gets sucked in and it's like the Rube Goldberg things. And sometimes they, they have uh, like a little waterway with sand and the kids play with the sand and they, they, they play with little boats. Any kind of cute exhibit that you'd find that would be interesting, uh, like a, a A fake grocery store with little fake grocery carts that a five-year-old can push around. So we have a tenant that makes that stuff. In the building next door, we have a company that that manufactures uh, safety products for the welding industry. Very very serious niche. If you do welding, you need to have those screens that are you can see through them, but they're colored so that the flame um, when you're doing The the welding, if you stare at the flame, it can hurt the inside of your eyes. I don't know if you've ever heard that. So they have to have these screens all around the welders. Somebody makes those screens. That's our tenant.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... Now we kind of again look at so the the manufacturing that goes on with the types of industrial properties that you're looking at is very light. It would be kind of like last mile like, you know, kind of putting things together that have been, you know, larger industrial processes have gotten to things like baking uh, again, you know, manufacturing of the welding stuff where, you know, the big huge sheets of like visqueen treated is made at another plant and they come and then they stitch it down and hang it and, you know, the kind of the last mile in the production process for what, uh, you know, is being utilized for this. Now, are there any, again, kind of specialty Things that go into these specific types of buildings that you look for, or again, is it just something to where it kind of fits that mold um, and doesn't include, you know, something that's had like a bunch of heavy industrial stuff? You know, you're not looking to reposition; you're looking at stuff that's basically been this kind of property for its entire life. And you know, obviously, making sure you get a good deal, the numbers work. Is that kind of a fair assessment of it? Yeah,
0: we don't want to touch the building. We we want to buy a building yep. that you put the key in the door and you open the door and you walk in with a potential tenant. And there's a small office in the front where there might be a few private offices, a conference room, and a lunch room. And then you open the door to the warehouse, and it's just boom, wide open warehouse. Uh, usually, we like buildings that are five percent office and ninety-five percent either manufacturing or warehouse. Every manufacturer, by the way, has to have a warehouse because what you've got loading docks in front of the building or behind the building, and a manufacturing company, and again, it's light manufacturing. They bring in raw materials on one side, usually, and then they are stored in racks. And then in the middle of the building, there's a production floor where people are assembling or doing something with machines. And then on on the other side of that is the finished product, which is also kept in racks, in boxes. So trucks bring in raw materials, they, they do their magic to it in the manufacturing process. They then put it in the warehouse and then they shoot it out in another truck that takes it to their customers. And that's a manufacturing uh, business. And, and for me, getting back to return on investment, I, it would be intolerable to make a 5% return. My investors like to make 7, 8, 9% on their money. And they don't want a 5% deal. They don't want a fancy building. They want a smaller building that can take any tenant at any time. Think about the fact that there are thousands and thousands of companies that are that are uh, entrepreneurially family-owned. Those kinds of tenants take our kind of buildings. There aren't that many giant companies that want a million square feet of space. So there's a lot more velocity in in our in our type of space in our size buildings, and that's why we love them.
1: Great. Jot down two questions. One is a little bit tongue in cheek. So do uh, so are breweries considered light industrial? No. Oh, really? Hmm. No. It, what, what what would they be considered?
0: Well, they're mostly retail. If, if, oh, it's, okay. if it's a if it's a commercial brewery where they don't. Have people coming in for parties and things like that, then it's industrial. But these okay. breweries that you see popping up where they want people to stop in, nobody stops in to an industrial <laughs> manufacturing plant.
1: Gotcha. Unless you work there, right? Um, <laughs> but- Again, I was going to say maybe I've been maybe I've been supporting uh, uh, light industrial uh, real estate for a lot longer than I thought I had. But anyways, back back to the point at hand. So, are these investments when you know you have the tenants that you kind of like to to do this with? Now, as far as kind of let's get into the the revenue model of this. Are these all basically being done as a triple net lease for the individual tenants, or how is
0: it? Anyone who tells you they're doing a triple net lease. It's very specialized. Very few people do triple net leases. Tenants don't want to be responsible for major capital improvements in a building. So we do what I call double net. The landlord is usually responsible for the maintenance, repair, and replacement of the roof. And if it's an older building, most Mm -hmm. tenants will want the landlord to be responsible for the not the maintenance, but the major repairs of the HVAC and the replacement of the HVAC equipment. a company that that maybe does ten million dollars in sales, let's say that occupies we'll call it a thirty thousand square foot building a roof on that type of building would be fifteen dollars a square foot that's four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. A tenant would have to be an idiot. you'd have the owner would have to be a stupid idiot to move into a building with a bad roof and say, hey, it's triple net, I'll take care of the roof, including replacement. Because a 30,000 foot building, the rent might be $10 a foot, that's $300,000 a year, plus taxes, insurance, maintenance, and utilities. Can you imagine them like waking up one day in a year and a half and saying, the roof's leaking and the landlord says, well, it's a triple net lease. You have to spend $450,000 and give me a new roof. Doesn't happen. It. it
1: Okay, well let's uh, let's move on a little bit to the um, to the the matter of the double net lease, like you mentioned, because I always like to hear um, new uh, you know terms in real estate. You know I certainly haven't been doing this as long as you have, but you know, I've been doing it for a little bit longer than a decade, so I, I've heard I, I always like to hear when I hear new things. So explain to me in your words exactly kind of how you like to structure these industrial leases um, as like you said, double net.
0: Well, pretend that you are a manufacturer, and I'll pick one of my other tenants just to, to give you an idea of who who I'm. I'm making you one of my avatars. All right. So. All right. All right. So, you manufacture magnets that are used in computers. Sure. Okay. You've got um, 120 employees, and you're looking for a 50,000 square foot building with 5,000 square feet of office for your corporate office and your engineers. And the rent's gonna be 10 bucks a foot for 50,000 feet. That's $500,000 a year. And I say, hey, Alex, thanks for coming to see my building. Uh, It's gonna be 10 bucks a foot. Now, the first thing that you're gonna do is you're gonna hire a tenant rep. Everybody's got a tenant rep, nobody goes and looks at a building by themselves. Because in every market, I belong to an organization called the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. I was just at the uh, National Conference, which happened to be in Chicago on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of last week. Uh, Every one of those brokers, industrial brokers, uh, have a presence in every major city and in small towns as well. There are SIORs all over the world. So... You own this magnet company, and every week you get a cold call from a broker saying, hey, Alex, how's the magnet business? By the way, you looking to move? And your answer is no, no, no. And finally, one day you decide you're going to move into 50,000 feet because your 30,000 foot building's too small. So Jim, Jim Smith calls you and says, hey, Alex, you looking for a building? And this week you figured out, hey, I need a building. You say, yeah, Jim, I am. He says, I'd like to come see you and put on a presentation as to why I should be your uh, tenant rep for the new building. I'll explain to you what the market is, what landlords get, what tenants get. And you listen to this presentation and you learn a ton of things because Jim's made 150 deals in the last three years. He knows the market. And he says to you, by the way, you're not gonna be responsible for the roof or structure, and I'm gonna do my best to make sure you're not responsible for replacing the HVAC. And also in case the sewer caves in, or there's an underground plumbing pipe that busts and water starts bubbling up, you're not gonna be responsible for that either. And so if every tenant is represented by a capable broker, there's a market, and the market is double net for these buildings. I don't think if there are 16,000 industrial buildings in Chicago that I would say that less than 1000 of them are triple net. There's no such thing as that in almost any building. Very unusual and most of the ones that are triple net are ones where the family owns the business and the family owns the building and it's just a matter of which entity pays for the new roof. But arm's length tenants don't buy roofs. It just doesn't happen. So. That's that's the difference, is that it's about who pays for major repairs and replacements that determines whether it's a net lease or a triple net lease.
1: Okay, that's also interesting. I didn't realize that there was kind of like a, um, almost a cottage industry of advocacy going on in the industrial real estate realm, You know, you, you know, besides having, you know, residential realtors that kind of fill that void in the residential space, you have you know, attorneys and hopefully someone on the syndication team that has enough experience to kind of go through the due diligence on, you know, commercial multifamily kind of things. But with the industrial side, that's pretty interesting that you have, again, kind of an advocacy, you know, component to this, because, again, I can definitely see the from the side of the renter that, you know, they're business people. They're like, okay, well, I just know we need more space. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like we we no longer can. You know, we're, our shelves are full. We need more space, and you know, what do we do? Uh, you know, from the commercial multifamily side, it's you know the individual tenants. Like, all right, well, I need another apartment. Okay, I can understand apartments, but with this it, again, that's certainly something interesting to uh, to learn. Now, let's transition a little bit. I think we've covered pretty well the identification, the utilization, and you know the the underlying kind of revenue stream, if you will, that's coming out of the, you know, tenant of how the leases are structured. You know, I'm sure that we could probably go on for hours on, you know, lease structure and everything like that. Uh, one last thing, what's the average term of lease for these buildings? Just real quick. Um, I'm sure it varies, but what's kind of a general range? Five that? years. Five years. Okay.
0: Yeah. But again, I, you know, I listened to the guy you talked to uh, last month and and seems like a nice guy, but I've never seen a twenty year lease for an industrial building ever in my life. Okay. I've never seen anything greater than a twenty, of course. Fifteens are highly unusual. One percent of deals are fifteen. The the typical lease term for an industri a light industrial property, which means almost all of them, is somewhere between three years and ten years.
1: Okay great so let's look at the investment structure side of things cuz so that's really where really, the uh, you know there's a lot of interesting you know tidbits to take away from you know on the Underlying asset side, but what I find really interesting about your investment philosophy is the lack of debt and investing in these things. Because real estate is many things to many different people, but cheap it is not. Um, you know, if you got some cheap real estate, let me know because I have some money I'd really like to buy it with. Um, but again, you know, we can always you know agree. It doesn't matter what you're looking at, whether it's a Uh, you know, a a single family home or a type A Amazon warehouse. It is not cheap uh, for anyone on either end of this. So give me a little bit of background on, you know, why you came to think that this was the uh, you know, more favorable way. Obviously, best is going to be determined by every individual investor, but kind of why you gravitated towards getting away from debt in most. I know you said you do some debt and we can certainly bridge that into what debt looks like to you and the broader context of your investment philosophy. But, you know, give us an idea of kind of how you came to be there, because I'm, I'm sure you didn't start there uh, from the beginning. So did I
0: did start there. So
1: really? Oh. Yeah.
0: Interestingly, I started there and then I became um far more uh, able to take or, or willing to take risk, and I started doing more and more and more debt. You know the story of the frog in the boiling water, you put you put the frog in
1: oh,
0: yeah. warm water and you turn the heat up and he doesn't realize that he's about to get boiled to death. So yep. when I did my first deal with Milt Pedowski in 1990 with the five sixty thousand dollars at twenty thousand dollars per unit per investor. Um, it was all cash, no no mortgage. I, I felt that I didn't need to take on a mortgage because $560,000 was not that much money to raise. And then the next deal, I borrowed a million dollars on a $3 million deal. And then after those two deals, we hit 1991. There was something called the Gulf War and there was something called the S&L crisis. And. People were giving back the keys to buildings and they couldn't afford their mortgages and I got in trouble even though I only had a million dollar mortgage on a three million dollar property on the second one I did. I got into trouble and I got into literally a a uh, an emotional depression. I thought that I had lost money for all these people that trusted me and it was it was a disaster I literally went through therapy, I had to get medication, I thought I I just screwed up my whole life. I was all of 31 years old. And I recovered. And I started doing more deals with less debt. But then things were working, and in the 1990s, industrial was going up, and I I brought in a young partner, 10 years younger than I was. At the time, maybe I was 35 and he was 25, and he was a go-getter. He was the high school football king. You know, he was the quarterback. He went to Northwestern on a full scholarship. This guy was smart and he was six foot five and he was good looking. He could have run for president. And he convinced me we should do a lot of debt, we'll make a lot more money. So we bought, I don't know, 75 buildings during that period of time from even, even uh, through the 9 11 was a a blip in the economy it was tragic but a blip in the economy so from the 1990s until 2007 i started being okay with borrowing 60 and 70 percent loan to value and only 30 to 40 percent equity and then in 2008 i had 50 buildings left and i had seven banks and i had 100 108 uh loan guarantees. And I fell back into the depression because I had vacant buildings and I had lenders banging down my door and I had people chasing me and I had lawsuits. And I went back into like an emotional crisis because it's hard to handle extreme adversity uh, when you're used to things sailing. I bought a house, I had cars, I had vacations. I was a big shot and it wasn't really a very big shot because I got knocked down like a like a bunch of bowling pins. you know all the bowling pins were up one day, and then on one day, September fifteenth two thousand and eight Lehman Brothers went out of business and c n b c was talking about tragedy and the economy and it it hit everybody and i I landed see that couch right there behind me? That's the couch I couldn't get off when I was literally probably suicidal. I just felt I had lost millions and millions of dollars, potentially, of my hundreds of investors. And I just was devastated. And I worked my way through it. Uh, I didn't go bankrupt. I, I turned it around, but it took a long time. It took years to turn it around. And with some counseling and some meditation and some guidance and some mentorship, I came out of it and I decided right then and there, No more debt, except possibly in certain special special situations, 30% debt maximum on any deal. So since then, most of my deals have been all equity. Uh, One is 30% debt. And I'm sticking with it because I like to sleep at night. Staying power is everything to me. And the devastation that I felt, I don't want to ever have that again. And I don't want my investors to lose their money. My investors are not new people learning how to invest. My investors are wealthy people trying to figure out how not to lose their wealth. Preservation of their wealth is what matters to them. They don't want to end up on the couch because they (laughs) made some stupid mistake and went into terrible investments where somebody didn't take care of them safely.
1: No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I went through, you know, my family went through, you know, very, uh, you know, tumultuous times. My dad was a uh, real estate advertising executive for, for many years. I don't know if you've been in real estate for this long. Do you ever recall the uh, Homes and Land magazine uh, publishing outfit for I, single family? I was family? a publisher
0: too. I saw all those. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he was uh, <clears throat> He was their director of franchise development and then VP of marketing. Um, so, you know, the this, this story is... As old as uh two thousand and eight um I guess would be the year to to market out but yeah it's i I definitely can you know see through that lens of why the philosophy needs to you know of, of why you had a a philosophical change in your investment outlook because you know. Anyone that made it through that, I think there was kind of a common core was the overextension of debt in all of these deals. I mean, you know, certainly there were other underlying issues and and different things that caused people to have hardship in that time. But by and large, if you take the lens that covers ninety to eighty percent of the issues that we had, it was debt related.
0: Debt, 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 debt. Debt, I call it. I say debt is death.
1: Yeah. Now, looking at the you know lens of that, it obviously is going to change kind of the investment. Um, you know, focus because you know one thing that's nice about debt is that it lets you get into larger investments. I like you, know, you don't have can I, to raise. Can I interrupt you for a second.
0: Yeah, what I'm seeing on the screen is you're a little blurry. Is that going to come out blurry on on the final?
1: No, I mean I'm seeing it just fine. It normally kind of, uh, kind of, uh, it, it buffers a little bit different between the two. So like you're pretty blurry on my side, but I never really <laughs> give it too much pause uh, because yeah. like I think it's just how it like like transmits the image. Like okay. I'm perfectly clear, you're really blurry, but it always it comes together in post if you will. Got it. Okay. Got it. Um so okay, for the edit. So with regard to debt, you know, it has all of these drawbacks, but one of the plus sides is that it allows you to invest in larger potential assets with, you know, the equivalent of the same amount of money raised. So, you know, with that said, you know, which obviously is going to affect cash flow. You know, you get a bigger asset, it can potentially cash flow more, you definitely have more debt service. Yeah. But let's come back to and looking at this. So how would you say that it kind of changed and really what is kind of now the core focus? Obviously, if you're not you know again, not utilizing nearly as much debt you 've kind of slashed the amount of debt you're willing to take on, and in only certain situations, but again, how does that kind of you know narrow the investment pool, or really was it just kind of looking at it from a different perspective, saying hey there's still plenty out there I can invest with only having to raise you know fifteen twenty thirty million dollars instead of needing to get fifty eighty ninety million dollars of total Um, you know, money in, utilizing debt. So tell us a little bit how that kind of changed for you and now what your kind of core focus is with utilizing a reduced debt structure. Sure.
0: Well, first of all, uh, it's a great question. It's the essence of how I make decisions to answer the question. I believe that real estate can and should very often be a business using leverage because. The leverage enhances your returns. The leverage gives you better tax benefits. The leverage gives you more profits when you sell it, it gives you a better yield if the interest rates on loans are low enough. Your interest rate has to be lower than, than your yield, or else you've got negative leverage and then you're screwed. But the the way that I look at it is it is a leverage business, and most people, I'm not against anybody else doing leverage. Let, let them do all the leverage they want. But I come from this standpoint of um, believing that a lot of real estate developers are uh, actually in some way compulsive gamblers and don't know it. Compulsive gambling is an illness. It's a true illness. And I'm very familiar with it because I've looked at it in the context of my career and the ups and downs. and when I've used debt and when I've taken a lot of risk versus not a lot of risk. When someone tells you they're a deal junkie, don't walk, run, junkie. If someone said, hey, I'm a junkie and I'd like you to invest with me, you'd say, <laughs> what? Deal junkie is a junkie. You're, you're a compulsive gambler if you don't do proper due diligence, if you don't uh, do risk mitigation to the best of your ability, and if you can't really define your risk. It's no different than going to the casino where the odds are stacked against you and the house wins. So for anybody else, they may not be compulsive gamblers. Maybe they're, in under, maybe they're well-controlled borrowers, okay? Maybe on behalf of their investors, borrowing is just fine, and their people are fine with it because maybe they don't know any better. Who, else do, who, who have they ever heard of that doesn't do leverage? But I look at it this way. I can't invest like other people do. I have to invest my way, and my way is the safe way. And yes, if the deal is a home run, it'll be much less of a home run without leverage. If the deal is a good deal, it'll be much much less good without leverage. But I have found a group of very wealthy investors who are like-minded with me, that there's a certain element or a certain amount of their portfolio that they should have on a very low risk basis. And my, my little area, my niche, which is B&C Industrial uh, with little or no debt is a totally separate niche, a totally separate asset class and structure than anybody else offers literally anywhere in the world. And my people like it. And I'm not saying people should put all their money with me. They should diversify and maybe take some risk, maybe take a lot more risk on other deals. They're just not going to get that in my deals because I'm, I'm unwilling to do that. My line in the sand is 30% maximum debt. Uh, I'm trying to maintain a maximum of a 15% loan-to-value ratio across my portfolio. And at least two out of three deals are all cash as a foundational uh, basis for what I do. So it's different. It's different. It's bizarre. Some people think I'm an idiot. I couldn't care less what they think because my people who write checks for $100,000 and 250000 they love having this element of real estate on a staying power sort of basis in their portfolio. And they'll do enough with me that I don't think anyone should put more than 3% of their net worth with me. I think they'd be nuts to do that. I don't think anyone should have three percent more than three percent of their net worth in anything. But I'd like to be the three percent for someone who wants safe A, uh, B, and C, uh, decent yield, sort of safe, put it on the shelf kind of um, real estate.
1: So, would you say that it's a fair kind of again viewpoint to say that the? amount of deals that you can do with that philosophy is going to be you know reduced because of the you know lack of wanting to utilize as much debt yeah. which again would kind of again to your point make you a much more specialized kind of investor in that yeah. realm yeah, it's,
0: for sure the deal yeah. I'm closing on Thursday which is 14 million dollars uh, um I'm borrowing 30% on this one it's it's a 3.9 million dollar loan and so that means that I've got in the ballpark of $9 million in in cash. It's hard. It's hard yeah. to raise. You know what it is? It's hard. It's hard to raise a lot of money. It's easy to go to a bank and get two-thirds of the money from the bank and not have to raise that much. It's so much easier. It's one phone call. My banker's name is Jay. Hey, Jay, it's Joel. Uh, I'm doing a $14 million deal. I'd like to borrow $10 million. I only have to raise $3 million. I could do it in five minutes for people who put in 250000 each. But I'll end up back on the couch when something goes wrong because it will go wrong. We're all human, and the market just throws darts right at our faces, and I want to be in a position where you know i've got I've got protection from the darts. I don't want to get hit in the face with a dart when something goes wrong. If a tenant leaves, if the economy goes bad, any of those things can happen and by having a lot of debt, the likelihood of of being wounded is much higher, but it's really a lot of work. I'm giving myself a real pat on the back that I raised $9 million instead of borrowing $9 million and only million. Yeah, and,
1: and, and to that point, what would you kind of say to people? It's, you know, and again, I'm using generalities here, but it's probably a little bit easier for someone in your position that's been doing it for that long. You know, you don't have a much deeper book of business, you have a track record with your clients. So for you to pick up the phone to your investors and raise, you know, and raise to a deal that needs ten, twelve million dollars and do it all cash is obviously going to be much easier. Again, by virtue of your hard work and where you've gotten to, for you to do that, than let's say someone that maybe has two, three, four, five years under their belt. So if someone's kind of interested in being able to position themselves in a in a way where they can and syndicate deals, and you know, be in a position where thirty percent loan to value is, you know, their max, or they're doing these all cash deals. What would you know if you were going to speak to your younger self or a younger generation that is going to come in and likes this investment philosophy? What are some nuggets that you could say are good to get started with? Is it learning, you know, tutelage under someone like you had? Is it, no. you know, what would you kind of say to those people?
0: Yeah, there's two things. Two things. These are the only two things that I think are are important enough to even mention. One, you've got to have an incredibly great mentor. You can't do it by yourself without making 100 mistakes before you figure out that now maybe you won't make as many. If you have a mentor, you might still make 20 mistakes instead of 100, but you'll see 80 things that your mentor taught you not to do. And I had this Podolsky family, and now I have other mentors. I I have an advisory board of eight of my most sophisticated, smartest investors. And I don't do anything. I don't buy a building. I don't make a lease with a tenant without talking to the eight people on the advisory board, usually on a Zoom call. Okay, so having great advisors and asking people to be your advisor, you know what, guess what? They'll invest. They'll invest. So it's building a group around you of mentors who also become advisors. That That's the first thing. The second thing is, it has to be, I feel that my relationships are what matter, not the transaction. So being relationship focused as opposed to transactional focused. And if somebody says to me, hey, Joel, you know, I'm a little tight on cash right now. I'd like to go into your next deal, but I can't put the 100000 into this one. My answer is, listen, you should not. It's not, come on, you got to do it. My thing's better. It's not selling. It's relationship maintenance by having the empathy and understanding who the other person is and where they're at and not pushing them to do what I want, but letting them do what they want. And that kind of relationship, those relationships are so important that someone might not go into my $13 million deal, but they might go into my next $3 million deal maybe in six months when when maybe they sell the summer home that they've been trying to sell that they couldn't get rid of. You know, people have different reasons why they go in or don't go in, but it's just lunches, breakfasts, coffees, going to their house, making phone calls, following up. My number one habit is I call three investors a day, no matter what, three of my investors to maintain that rapport. And they know my kids Or they know about my kids. They know about my wife. They know about my problems. They know that my dad died last year. I know who their kids are. I know what their kids do. I know their wife. I know their, you know, their grandchildren or their, where they live, what their hobbies are. If you don't know all that stuff, you'll never get anyone to do anything because it's relationships. A hundred percent. That's all it is.
1: Yeah, I can I can wholeheartedly agree. Um, You know, something that I've you know picked up uh i can't remember who exactly said this exact phrase to me but it was uh if you want to be successful in life learn how to give a insert your favorite adjective and he who said it like that you know it's like whatever makes it but just you know care you know at the end of the day like like have some empathy for your fellow person than any capacity that you want to do and it'll pay off for you tenfold just you know be a nice person you know it's don't overcomplicate Dale Carnegie's philosophy, and it'll probably be okay. I mean, there's a reason that people are still buying how to win friends and influence people, because the stuff works. Uh, and, you know, going into the context of business, caring about the people, you know, not just being cold, hard calculated and, you know, store yourself into an Excel spreadsheet will probably pay a few dividends. And I think that's kind of a great place to kind of, you know, wrap this up of, you know, kind of identifying the, you know, what these different types of industrial properties are, how the actual revenue flows from them, how these deals can get put through the difficulties that you've had, you know, in your career trajectory and what has landed you to being, you know, in the position that you are now and how you like to structure these I think um, you know again it's kind of a nice well-rounded package so with that said, any cool. last final closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, and if they'd like to learn more about potential you know things that you have going on how can they reach out to you
0: Sure I have two comments number one, I live by two things which is uh, give more than you take that that's that's a relationship that, that works if you, if you do that and uh, secondly, uh, listen more than you talk. <laughs> those are the two things, you know. Yeah, we really have all really two ears
1: in one mouth.
0: Yeah, they're right. Exactly, they're really simple. A lot of people forget those.
1: Yeah, you know, be be a net positive in the world instead of a a net negative is a <laughs> right. good good philosophy. Um, If they want to get in touch with you, how can they? How can they reach uh, out?
0: Our website is britproperties dot com. B R I T with one T. Uh, Propertiesplural.com. And my favorite thing on our website is uh, an article that says why you should not invest with us. That's a good Fantastic. article. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Well, Joel, I do appreciate you taking your time today. It's the one asset that we can never create any more of, so time is incredibly valuable, and I appreciate you spending some of it with us today. Again, my name is Alex Perny. This has been the Alternative Investing Advantage Podcast. Thank everyone. Thanks, everyone, for being with us today, and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage Podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies.
0: Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.